And now, attempt to concentrate completely on your duty of the moment or on the traveler, on his well-being. Think of him as someone you care deeply for. Greetings, everyone. Matt here, and welcome to Star Trek Essentials. Our voyage each week, review the very best of the first 50 years of the Star Trek franchise. Joining me, as always, is Pete. Hiya, Pete. Hello, number one. Oh, you're the, you're the, you're the Picard in this situation, eh? I am. Well, apropos indeed, today we're talking about the Star Trek The Next Generation episode entitled Where No One Has Gone Before. Pete, before we do that, tell us a little bit about Star Trek TNG. Absolutely. Well, Star Trek The Next Generation was the second live-action Star Trek series to ever air, bowing in the fall of 1987 to Much Ballyhoo. Star Trek, the film series, was riding high and uh, off the success of uh, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, they were bringing... Uh, the flagship back to TV Um, channel 11 in my area WPIX was the one to carry it in terms of the modified syndication type situation Um, and I remember it coming on on a Monday we had recently had back to school and uh, it was not really on a lot of kids radars I remember that much Um, What I do remember, though, is this is a series that I was with for the most part, Uh, watched a lot of it early on in its run, got away from it. I think a moment that brought a lot of viewership back and increased the ratings was the the end of the third season, the beginning of the fourth season. And by the end of its seven-season run, it was hailed as a classic and really... Um, you know, instrumental in relaunching um, Star Trek on the small screen. Um, The episode we're going to talk about today, uh, where no one has gone before, very politically correct again. Oh, absolutely. uh, A product of the 1980s. Um, But the type of idea here where the... um, the first two episodes aired as one uh, movie, so a two-hour first episode, Encounter at Farpoint. And then uh, we get to a situation where this episode is the fifth standalone episode and really where they started to get into some hardcore exploration. Indeed, and as a as a quick little uh, refresher for everyone, uh, as Pete, as you said, it was the the first episode of the season. It's numbered one hundred and six. Uh, although, if you go to Netflix uh, and perhaps other sources now, it's called one hundred and five um, because uh, because of the combining of the two as one episode. And uh, as a quick little plot refresher. Uh, this, of course, is set on the Enterprise D. The Enterprise is visited by Mr. Kaczynski and the alien known as the Traveler. The Traveler sends the Enterprise to distant parts of the universe and help is required from good old Wesley Crusher to bring the ship home. I remember one of the most biting pieces of uh, criticism at the time 
referring to the Enterprise D as a flying dentist office. Uh, I remember that piece of criticism very uh, vividly from when I was uh, 11 years old getting into this. I find no fault with the set design. We'll talk a little bit about some of the lighting and whatnot uh, for this episode, this part of uh, the, the first season. But to me, this is the iconic design. This, is no, this has not aged. Uh, you know, the Enterprise D, to, to my view, it has not aged. Um, yeah, the whole ramp two-tier thing in the bridge occasionally you'll see somebody really hoofing it to get up that ramp to get to the uh to get to the the um you know the the back part of the bridge quickly in order to let the shot continue to flow or whatever but other than that and that's kind of more of an acting tv show thing right to me this is this is the i mean i know the classic trek bridge bridge is perhaps more iconic to me this is the one where it's like man that's what that's what i want to see one day out there well, this was your joint, Matt. You know, um, I came to Star Trek through the movies. Um, you know, th this was in your wheelhouse as far as your exposure. Absolutely. Correct? Seven and a half years old watching uh, watching that first episode, you, you know, the, the double length, the counter far point uh, before uh, the next episode, um, Naked Now, before that had even aired. So it was in that first week. And somewhere, I doubt I have it at this point, but for years, I had this VHS tape that I had lovingly made of uh, the first six episodes minus la uh, Last Outpost. Um, okay, so you had Code of Honor. You had the, um, the Battle of the Two Women on the Electrified Jungle Gym. Well, not just that about Code of Honor. Code of Honor will never appear in Star Trek Essentials. It is a noteworthy episode to see. But for those of you who have not seen it, and I think some people in the audience might be saying, uh, I've seen every episode of Star Trek. Why are you doing that? We have some other people who have, say, joined this podcast who who uh, you know are, are casual Star Trek fans or who are watching these episodes ahead of us. Uh, you, you know, They're watching for the first time. Um, that particular episode, Pete, I think you could fairly say involves the Enterprise going to the planet of the African blacks where <laughs> where these these aliens who are just African-American people with no, you know, space glitter or extra antenna. They're kind of there. The men are kind of bare chested, maybe with kind of a, a vest sort of tunic, but kind of they're they're bare chested African men and, you know. Very kind of like, you must respect me in my new lands. Kind of that sort of, you know, uh, African-esque accent. But Matt, however, I will remind you, since we're talking about a show that, you know, came at the rise of the politically correct movement, it is African-American. Pete, I'm talking specifically from the continent of Africa. And I'm but, talking about the planet of Africa-America. Well, to wrap up the reflection on that episode before we truly get into where no one has gone before, the the key turning point is when the 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 tribal leader of the planet has his eye turned by the blonde Caucasian Tasha Yar, which yes, he's willing to put everything on the line and break up his society and his marriage uh, because of the blonde white woman. And you're sitting here going, "Oh my goodness, this is the show that had like the first interracial kiss. This is the show that." you know, explored, uh, you know, has explored um, uh, issues of the planet, you know, the whales in Star Trek four and and rebirth and regeneration and getting old and kind of all these universal things. And now we're having the guy from the planet of the Africans likes himself white women enough to 
put everything on the line. But Matt, three words, electrified jungle gym. They do fight Tasha, and I believe her name is Yarina, which always struck me as weird. Like, it's Tasha Yar <laughs> versus his wife, Yarina. Like, okay, we didn't have to try too hard on that one. Um, but yes, they do fight on an electric, uh, electrified jungle gym with poison spike gloves. Yes. Uh, it's, it's hideous. It's a metaphor. Well, I mean, this episode is out there, and I have very, again, vivid memories of this episode early on. Uh, though its air date was October 26th, um, I saw it closer to Halloween. I remember getting back in um, from trick-or-treating and uh, flipping this on and being like, you know, damn, son, this this some out there Star Trek or whatever, you know, type of uh, jive I was speaking at the time. Um, you know, between the... Uh, the the warp engine where they they wind up and then we get into all the hallucinations and everything else like that um you know this was not you know the star trek uh movie idea and this was certainly not um a plot line that the original show ever carried off not that they wouldn't have been capable but um you know, and Matt, I know you're going to talk about this in a, in a little greater detail, the, the special effects and, and getting digital effects thrown at us, particularly so early in the episode, the, the warp simulations and everything like that. And, um, you know, seeing these computer graphics on our TV of all places in 1987, this, this caught attention. Yeah, I mean, there definitely are episodes throughout all seven seasons, particularly in the first and second, where... The, the age of the show, you know, 1987 uh, shows. Pete and I are both w- uh, working off of, by the way, uh, you know, the the non-remastered version. I, Pete, do you watch on Netflix? I do, but I also have, as with all of the um, Star Trek shows, I have the DVDs. I alternate depending on what's easiest to get to at the moment. Right, right. Um, this I did watch on Netflix. So I mean, either way, we're we're, we're both working off of the you know the, the non remastered. Right. That said, it's just this episode in particular. It's just incredible effects when they first arrive at uh, Galaxy M thirty three. It you know it's it's a home run in terms of it looking kind of vaguely familiar the way we kind of expect a. a, a science fiction galaxy to look and then when they head to that end of the universe it's just surreal and i know it was done with you know christmas lights and reflections off of the effects guys basement wall and all that and i mean look if we were if we were to take just that footage which i know was done at at, at a very low um definition rate and just simply put that on on blu-ray i'm sure it wouldn't look great don't get me wrong but the essence of it is just amazing it just you know for for the degree that it that is it's interspersed with the rest of the episode you know with its lower resolution and all that it some goofy music yeah. those early lycra looking awkward uniforms complete with some guys still walking around with skirts uh excuse me those were skorts <laughs> um yeah thank you thanks gene for imagining the day one day when men are comfortable in skirts for part of one season um but yeah the effects you know here we have again the kind of the category that we're in right now the promise of the final frontier these effects are fantastic 
And Pete, I just wanted to talk to you. And speaking of going out there, it's not just kind of where the Enterprise goes. It's these hallucinations. It's like you get some characterization there with Worf and his quote-unquote kitty cat, his Targ. Yes. There's, there's uh, you know, the nameless characters. There's the woman doing ballet in an almost almost good um, but imperfect shot, you know, where I think it's it's this jump cut as the light shines into the camera and she's spinning and she's now no longer in the ballet outfit. Right. Points for, you, you know, you get points for, for conception, even though they didn't quite pull it off. Uh, the guy in the string quartet, that just still sticks with me to this day, that when he kind of wakes up out of his little daydream, this kind of the string goes, nah, you know, almost mm-hmm. Giacchino-esque, if you will. Um, most of all, though, you, you talk about remembering this episode. I distinctly remember watching this episode with my parents. Hey, it's those fun Star Trek people that go on their adventures. All of a sudden, Tasha Yar is like, oh, I just flashed back to a rape gang chasing me. And me, me at seven years old going, I know that's a bad thing. Uh, I don't think I should ask. But those boys with the flashlights didn't look like they were nice. And I don't know what's going on. Yeah, that was definitely uh, jarring. You knew from the moment that she referred to Worf's Targ as a kitty cat that they were foreshadowing she would see her own. And then, you know, apparently the last time she saw the kitty, there was uh, a seriously traumatic incident. Um, But Picard in the elevator nearly falling out Picard and his mama mama uh the uh the flamer who's in the hallway uh you know uh unable to get to engineering or wherever he's headed uh and Picard just walks him through uh dominating his thoughts you know you got to control those thoughts Matt okay <laughs> it's all about the energy of thought you know the traveler is the lens um, and I think somebody at some point I have in my notes here, nonsense, somebody refers to it as, as nonsense <laughs> and the, the, you know, points for the attempt as a coherent whole. I, I think this episode definitely did not hold up as well as I remembered it. Um, yeah. See, it's funny that you should say that. And maybe this is just, you know, baked into my experience of, of you know when i saw it a slightly younger age maybe a bit more wide-eyed also the number of times i've seen this episode and i have not seen it in maybe i've seen it once previous to watching it for the podcast once in the period of time that that star trek um uh you know all the star treks ended up on netflix but before that it had been years and years and years and years but i have this episode almost shot for shot just baked into my brain there's in a rewatch there's nothing in this episode that that can surprise me nothing that doesn't feel familiar i just feel like are there better episodes of the next generation yes are there better episodes in the first season Eh, maybe you know we might get to them neutral zone jumps out my mind as kind of having a strong romulan thing but then the the fact that there's the strange you know humans from the 21st century kind of takes away a bit but Pete, to me, this is an essential, you know, not to jump to the end, why is it essential? But, like, this is on the list because it's just swinging for the fences. Oh, they definitely took the risks. But, you know, the moment your eyes are battered by uh, Wesley Crusher's uh, roughly, um, you know, uh, tan sweater, you're <laughs> like, man, what have I gotten myself into right here? And, again, the aim of this 
uh, incarnation of Star Trek, like you said, was certainly high, but they just didn't hit it early on. But I, I'm a firm believer they don't get to where they are later if they didn't, you know, kind of, um, you know, work these episodes, these these types of ideas and, you know, tropes and things like that out of the system. Well, I'm again going to disagree slightly. And again, you know, seven-year-old me watching this episode, I was just like, yeah, some smart, you know, some smart kid. He could absolutely be like running the show to this degree and be trying to de trying to deliver important information about the phasing alien to the first, uh, you know, to, to, to second in command who wouldn't wouldn't listen to him because grownups are dumb, man. I, to me, I love the Wesley stuff. Seven-year-old me loved the Wesley stuff. Adult well, me that's looks... because Wesley is actually seven years old. <laughs> but the idea here, you know, I'll further my thesis is the fact that they left the Milky Way and they've traveled two galaxies over. They're 300 years uh, away from home. So basically in 1987, they nailed the eight-year um, later uh, plot structure of Star Trek Voyager. Okay. Well, and, and then the other fact that in reality, it would be absolutely terrifying upon those two jumps to realize where are we? Oh my God, there's nothing out here that we could subsist off of. We're never going to get back. We are screwed. To me, would have been a more compelling place to take this episode instead of the hallucination psychological terror that is less than effective well I, I think there's a couple things going on in this episode i think one is they're trying to figure oh, out there's exactly... some things going on <laughs> we're gonna get to that in a moment <laughs> uh, i think so much of the first season of star trek the next generation really is star trek you know that you knew about the kirk stuff but the next generation just kind of updated kind of you know tng didn't didn't become the show that we that we look back on mostly into season three i mean season two there's some strong stuff but there's a writer's strike going on then um this this is an episode where it's not about you know like i think it's a season five episode where like commander Riker meets a genderless person and makes her feel girl feelings and it's an episode actually about homosexuality <laughs> like this is an episode that's about the the big questions of the day this isn't even save the whales this is just like we're just going out there we're finding crazy stuff and darn it we're gonna we're just gonna like we're just gonna go crazy because we can because you know whatever um also just to, to return to wesley for a second adult me looks back and says this i don't know what the the grand wesley plan was but the effect of this episode is to say the wesley that we saw in the naked now where he's just going to solve everything with his repulsor beam and his pulling his chips. And he's just going to do it all because he's actually smarter than everyone. They're dialing it. They're a dialing it back a bit by saying, all right, well, if he's that good, let's make him some sort of like quasi officer. And yeah, it's going to be the rainbow top that, you know, with the three colors that still doesn't look that great, but let's dial back the kid, you know, kids are us sweaters and start to kind of make him a junior, junior officer and then on top of that, we're saying, oh, and he is such a boy genius. And guess what? You know, the traveler sees it. You know, well, th there really yeah. is something there. 
And for me, you know, a perfect segue into where we're going next. For me, this really ups the Wesley destiny angle. Um, you know, uh, not a spoiler, but for anybody who's not seen all of the show, you know, he eventually is dead all along, phased out. No, he he was not dead along. Okay. Uh, he's just a boy. Um, but you know, here, all right. So we get to the acting ensign crusher. This begins that, you know, painful subplot, (laughs) Um, painful, erroneous. It makes him part of the grown up (laughs) story. Well, you know, you 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 talk about him, you know, solving the the episode before, you know, and this is really the segue into his larger story, the the metaphysical story that he's special beyond um, this crew, that he's more important than them even um, because of his abilities. So let's talk about him and the traveler in a story that would never be allowed to run on TV in the year 2013. Why do you say that, Pete? The kid-touching vibe on a scale of 1 to 10 is at 11 teen, the way (laughs) it is played in this episode. And that is no offense to either of the actors. Um, The Traveler actor, Eric Menyuk, if I'm pronouncing it correctly, Matt, do you know anything about him? Didn't he go on to be a lawyer? That I don't know, but I can tell you he was the runner-up for the data role. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so this episode and this role, which he recurs on um, two other occasions throughout the seven-season run, this was the consolation prize. And it's a fairly plum role for somebody who didn't get you know, what would become an iconic role on this show, really the breakout uh, role, if you would, in data. Um, But the way that he plays it and and the way that they interact, particularly coupled with the dislikable character he's kind of traveling with, um, is very, very hard to watch right now. And I cannot imagine any executives at any studio right now signing off on the way that they interact and the way that it comes across it 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 speaks to kind of the myopic view that i have of this episode yes of course i knew he was the the runner up to data side note he he indeed is an attorney did a quick google search you can go to manyucklaw.com looks like it perhaps has not been updated in a while does Um, his the interior of his law firm look like the bridge of the enterprise d or main engineering well, the background on his website is actually kind of a, a fine oak, as you might find on the, the horseshoe. Um, so <laughs> I guess, you know, had had a different casting decision been made, would there be like SpinerLaw.com and, <laughs> you know, Brent Spiner would kind of... FreshHell.com? Be... <laughs> <laughs> um, sticking with the Traveler there, I thought that the makeup was... was was quite good. I'm not going to say fantastic. I wanted to, but the makeup is quite good. Oh, I, definitely. The the hands, the the forehead. Yeah, I mean, it's not often that you see hand prosthetics. Um again, you know, part of part of what this podcast is about, not this episode, but part of what Star Trek Essentials is about is that 
for each of these Star Trek series, you and I bring a slightly different perspective. Certainly when we get into some of the, the Voyager and particularly Star Trek Enterprise stuff, you know, you you're the you're the expert. You've seen you've seen all of them. I have not seen all of either Voyager or Enterprise. Well, obviously, I'll see the episodes we discuss. Um, similarly here, yeah, we both watched Next Generation back in the day, but like seven year old there's still seven year old me who who can't quite see what you're talking about, you know, concerning well, the travel me, or Wesley 11, connection. 11 year old me is not seeing it either, but, right. you know, particularly watching this now, you know, and evaluating it from the standpoint of, you know, uh, where TV is now and where TV is then, you know, between the vibe with the two characters, you know, and the, just the overly friendly neighbor type of aspect seemed <laughs> very, very, tough you know and then kasinski with boy boy don't play with that you know <clears throat> and the idea of the boy and that they develop over the course of this episode and later on they develop this special attachment it's played much better in the later episodes because i don't know maybe um there was this whole thing with the Catholic Church, uh, <laughs> you know, that really came to the forefront in the uh, the early 90s. And I think some studio exec said, OK, well, this is where we were at when he was on before. And now can we just say he wants to go with him on a trip? <laughs> yeah, I I can't disagree completely. I mean, the Wesley stuff is a big bit thick at times you know the whole mom he's my friend like he, you're right he does come off at set it does come off as seven versus i mean i don't know will wheaton's age now or back then will wheaton will wheaton i mean what would you peg wesley in season one to be about like 13 14 yeah yeah so he definitely is playing and again wesley i don't know will wheaton might have been younger might have been older but i feel like the character was probably about 13 or 14 and listen he was he was one of the established actors oh yeah on these shores he was a huge coup for them to score coming off of um stand by me and you know he was somebody yeah. you know he wasn't kicked off the next generation he left the next generation to go do more work in films and unfortunately it backfired on him um, but you know, and, and again, this is no knock on him. I mean, he is much maligned in, in the fandom, um, you know, but it's as it's written, um, and played not as it's played, if that makes sense that, yeah, I mean, that it comes across, you know, in, in a difficult way. I mean, you could probably, I'm just going through the cast in my head. You could probably make the argument that he had a brighter star, uh, than certainly than, the guy who had done a little bit of British TV and a couple of movies in this country versus, you know, uh, Frakes coming off of, uh, I want to say, a Civil War miniseries or something uh, versus Gates McFadden, who, you know, had choreographed some stuff, you know, and worked with uh, worked with the Muppets. Listen, you know, he's the second most established actor on the show at the start of the series and the first being your boy. Well, I was even going to say, as much as I love LeVar, Bur LeVar Burton, my, you know, my hero in so many ways, uh, how this was probably 10 years after Roots. So, I mean, LeVar yeah, Burton. Yeah, but he was, he was reading Rainbow in and up. He was, he had been in enough, you know, um, did he, did his career need a jump start and, and a more stable platform? Of course. But, um, 
you know, compared to a kid actor, I, I got to go LeVar Burton over, a, you know, a prominent kid actor any day. Fair enough. Well, with that, should we move on to uh, talking about our favorite warp engine charlatan, Mr. Kaczynski? Uh, the guy is just unlikable and, um, you know, plays it as it's written and it works um, here. You know, um, tonally, I have a little bit of an issue uh, between, you know, how bitter and gruff early on, particularly in this episode, Picard is, you know, run flat against the, uh, the ego of, uh, a Kaczynski. Um, can I ask a, a question? Matt? Absolutely, Pete. Okay. So you're, you're rendezvousing with, uh, another Federation ship that, um, apparently a 75 year old, uh, you know, version of which is flying around in the fearless, which, which is the model apparently of the Excelsior and looks just like, uh, you know, the late Kirk days. Okay. Side note, it actually is the same effect shot from encounter Farpoint when yes. that Excelsior class ship drops off McCoy. Yes. Um, it's just without the planet in the background. Right. And okay. So, you know, early days of these types of effects and I don't, I give them a pass for reusing it. Okay. Maybe get a new ship. But but anyway, okay. Not, not to interrupt, side note, the USS New Jersey that was uh, built and fought in World War II also saw action 50 years later in the, uh, in, in the first Gulf War, obviously in a, in a much you know, smaller capacity. But like the United States of America has 50-year-old ships still in action. Um, yeah, but Matt, your iPhone 4S is two generations, almost three generations behind. So now what? Well, <laughs> you're telling me starships, uh, you know, 75 years, we're not going to have, uh, you know, more updated models. All right. Maybe that's why they're working on the engine regardless. Yeah, there then you go. Anyhow, make, anyhow, I'm th sorry. then it doesn't make sense that he's he's revising the engine of, you know, the Federation flagship. But we digress. OK, so he comes on and, uh, you know, can I ask why you're receiving um, an officer? albeit an engineer, okay, a, a tech specialist, and a companion uh, from another Federation ship, and you're greeting them with the ship psychologist to see what they're about. You know, that to me is having, you know, is like having your shrink evaluate the plumber. Well, but I mean, isn't part of it that they don't know, like, what his deal is? I know, but it tips its hand so early that something is up. Um, and again, on, on rewatch, obviously. Well, wait. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to totally interrupt you. Fin finish your thought, and, and then I will knock it down. Sure. On rewatch, obviously, it's, it's far more apparent. Um, but it's, it speaks to, again, you know, where they bungled these characters early with, you know, uh, Deanna Oh, I, I can't feel the one, but the other, blah, 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 blah. You know, it, it, it really was a lot of that early on. And they had split the two characters. Um, they had split the one character, the Macha Hernandez character, was going to be the female character who was just going to be the security officer. And they split that character in the, you know, the series Bible into two and created Tasha Yar and created Deanna Troy. And 
you know, I think we see the worst of both characters in this episode in getting to uh, the Kaczynski character. Here's my explanation for it. We're still at a point. Yes, there's gruff Picard that we'll, we'll get into in greater detail in a little bit. But we're at a point story-wise where uh, I think Picard, it's, it's certainly we're still in the phase from Encounter Farpoint where it's like, hey, number one, I didn't exactly pick you. Like you weren't handpicked. We were kind of posted together and I'm still kind of getting to know what your deal is, how well I can trust you, what your strengths are, your weaknesses. So right here's my take on the first act. Riker is the one harping on, hey, this guy can't be all he seems to be. This guy can't be all he seems to be. So Picard basically says, in so many words, uh, I'm tired of hearing about this and or fine, you care about it so much, you go investigate. Like basically, you know, not that Picard is as as gruff as get out of my hair, but it's like, fine, you're you're my guy who's supposed to keep me in check. You're saying there's a problem. I don't see a problem. You keep telling me there's a problem. Uh, go investigate the problem and report back. If you report back and say, hey, no problem, boss. All right. Well, guess what? You know why I'm captain. You come back and say, hey, we found a, you know, uh, you know, box of, uh, you know, faulty hammers with him. He's a he's a fraud. OK, great. Now I know I can trust you a bit more. So Riker, number one, get out of that chair of yours and do something. Riker gets the okay, and as Riker's going out, he's like, "Pardon me, sir. Uh, do you think I could bring my ex-girlfriend? I mean, the counselor who has special powers, including I like to be naked with her powers. Can we hang? Can her and I hang out on this little mission?" And he's Picard's like, "Uh, sure. The one that can read minds or whatever, go ahead." So that's kind of my take, where it's like. Hey, you have Picard's point of view is, hey, you have a problem with, with this guy. You're not letting it go. You go investigate. You want to get help with that. Fine. Go pick whoever you need on your little team. She's sitting here on the bridge. You're going to go meet him in the transporter room. Great. Go for it. Well, uh, you know, again, here's another question. OK, so he's done this on other ships in the fleet with, you know, stunning. Uh, we're talking about Kaczynski here with, with stunning results. OK, were the other starship crews so completely oblivious to the traveler winking out? And that's a reference to the original series. Okay. Winking out, phasing out as Wesley uh, points out uh, that they didn't see this going on. They really needed an empath to know, Oh, we can't read him. Something's up here. Eh, I mean, I'll give it a little, little wiggle room there for, for story. Um, Maybe their uh, their main engineerings are are not as spaciously accommodating, <laughs> so you can't see the traveler from from kind of your main console. You know, maybe the traveler is kind of you know up up in the you know up in the duct or whatever, pushing his buttons whilst they're in the cramped you know the cramped control room on level two. I, I don't know that kind of thing. I don't know, Matt. It sounds it sounds mighty convenient. Okay. And then the fact that, okay, the first time he gets it to jump, and obviously we're dealing with a better engine on top of the fact that Wesley's there uh, bringing whatever he can out of the Traveler, okay, through their relationship. But, um, you know, the second time they go to warp, um, they wind up even further away. Hello, can you even turn the thing around? I thought for certain that I was misremembering this episode and that, you know, once they wind up really far away, 
that the second time when they wind up really, really far away was in the other direction, like almost, oh man, we we just overshot earth and everything else we ever know right now. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, now we're 300 years from home. Um, but it's, it's still in the same direction. Oh, I see what you're saying that for the, for the try part two, they should have been facing. Yeah. Are you sure about that? I know that I'm a hundred percent. Okay. Okay. I'm a hundred percent sure. And that would have been a thing, you know, for somebody to completely, you know, and yes, they find out on the second attempt. All right. This guy is not controlling this. The other guy is, but wouldn't anybody think to turn the ship around? I mean, is this some kind of, uh, you know, um, Roadrunner Wiley E. Coyote maneuver. We're basically going to go so fast. We're going to return on the other side. <laughs> Is that what they were hoping for? You, you raise a fair point. You certainly raise a fair point. Okay. You know, that the, they don't recur, uh, reverse course, I, I think is, you know, a little bit of an issue. And then, you know, when, all right. So that second place they wind up and the physics of space no longer exist. And, you know, or, or attempt for what that point of deep space where, you know, thought and, um, and energy are converging is that, you know, there's a funny background and floaty flashy things. <laughs> I just think is well, wait, you I, know, I, a little I, bit I, more like poltergeist than it is like, you know, science fiction. I disagree there as well. I think that when they were at the, the edge of the universe or the end of the universe, whatever they call it, it um that was just meant to be so f it kind of still within the realm of of you know the the physical universe but just you know the effects were expressing something that was so completely foreign to our eyes i think that when the traveler has his bit about you know uh you know thought and reality and space and time they're all connected i think he was commenting kind of from a from a universal point of view like they weren't at the place where thought was whatever it, it was always there and that he had kind of jump-started it for ballerina girl and string quartet guy you know and i miss my klingon kitty cat oh i disagree i think they're in a place where it converges they're not ready for it so much of the run of this show so many episodes are about humanity not yet ready that's q um, every episode, virtually every episode he's in is humanity not quite ready for this larger universe, literally and figuratively, and seeing where they stack up, you know, introducing the Borg for the first time and then being able to pull them out of that before they're ready. You know, I, I think this is a an absolute meta commentary and it's not done from a standpoint of you know, his his narration is needed to put in perspective what we're seeing. But I think they're absolutely in a place where those things come together. Fair enough, then. I, you know, I if think, you're going to. Yeah, I can listen, man, let's let's go science for a moment. You know, we know that the Big Bang exploded outward. OK. And, you know, if we're going to follow that through, then there's got to be a point where whatever the Big Bang banged bigly from you know is is just on its outer portion where it's not as defined as it is in the center and you know that would make perfect sense where you know laws of physics would you know lose their their hold and and that that's why it works for me but it only works 
for me through what the traveler gets at. By the way, uh, on the, the the original um, draft for this plot, speaking of the Big Bang, uh, was basically that uh, I don't have it in front of me that their attempt to get home, like it, they were out there for six days, and then they, um, in their attempt to get home, they created a new universe and therefore got to rest on the seventh, uh, making the USS Enterprise you know, God or something. Wow. So I'm kind of glad they didn't quite do that. Yeah. Well, that could have been, that could have been dicey. <laughs> and as another side note, I know the original title was where no one has gone. No, I'm, uh, where none no have man. gone before. Oh, which, it wasn't no man. No, no, no. It was where none have gone before. So when, when you have this moment in the episode where they go, where are we? And data goes where none have gone before. That would have well, been a lot he cooler said if he episode. said the name of the episode. He just said the episode title. <laughs> he almost said the episode title. Right. Um, well, I mean, you know, I, I think the the final point we're going to look at for today is, you know, who knew long journeys could kill the giant bug up Captain Picard's posterior? You know, this guy is, you know, terminally, um, you know, buggered in the first couple episodes. And this finally begins to break the ice. He allows the boy to stay on the bridge after this, um, you know, and really gets in touch with his feelings, you know, Hey everybody, let's, uh, let's control those thoughts. Let's think about the traveler's well-being. you know? Uh, yeah. Captain Picard. Yes. Uh, this episode had me wondering though, you know, it's famous how Patrick Stewart thought it was just going to be 13 episodes, make some money, go back to London, uh, lived in a hotel for the first season because he was just perpetually perplexed why they weren't getting canceled. I wondered if, you know, and look, we can all agree Patrick Stewart is a is a fine actor, perhaps the best uh, or the most skilled actor that Star Trek has had. But I kind of felt like you could see Patrick Stewart uh, wondering is this the episode where we all get canceled when he addresses the crew the whole work together thing oh, go God. back and watch it i have the clip you know to 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 at the top of the episode i genuinely think there's this moment where he kind of pauses it's a dramatic pause but he kind of like his eyes move for a second and i really think that he's just like holy crap this is so not shakespeare this is so not challenging this is like this is tripe and I hope nobody at home sees this. I really Focus genuinely believe all of your thoughts on the traveler. Uh, yeah, on each other or the traveler, the on one the known traveler. as the traveler. We can all work together. Think good thoughts and we will get back from Neverland. The flip side is I think that that, um, that speech does uh, is part of what makes this episode essential. But first, I just want to take a quick look at this episode in terms of what I like to call, oh, 1980s. We have some odd close-ups, like when Riker and Troy are outside the transporter room. Um, one of them, I think it's Riker, is especially close to the camera. Like, when he walks out of the shot, you can almost see, like, it's almost like he's too close, like he's now overly lit because he's too close to the light. Um, there's some kind of over-set blocking. You know, blocking is where you tell the actors to go stand. When Picard is asking the crew for ideas... Before he's asked for ideas, Jordy stands up and then Data stands up kind of behind him, 
so that they can be in the shot. And he's like, I'll take some ideas. And, you know, first we go to Worf and then literally it's just like, well, we could do this. We could do that. It's like, I'm sitting here going, whoa, can you let the boss be like, all right, good idea. Tell me more. Or like, no, I don't want to go in that direction. So if your idea is like his idea, I don't want to hear it. Like, <laughs> it's just kind of this moment, like, I want to hear from everybody. It's like, gee whiz, dad, we could go fishing or we could go for a drive. It's just like, oh, you know, there's that. And then quickly, Pete, I want to talk about the underlit sets. This was part of the season one lighting plan. I know at a certain point, I can't remember whether it's toward the end of season one or beginning of season two, they officially abandoned that lighting scheme for kind of the brighter aspect. But particularly when we're in sickbay and the travelers in the, the central sickbay bed, you cannot see the background. And I'm sitting here going. Yeah, it did strike me as very dark in there. Yeah. Uh, you know, and granted, this is from our perspective now, where for the last 15 years, Hollywood has either been preparing for or living under the reality of HD, giant TVs, stuff where, you know, you need to build that set out to, to excellent detail because people will see it because it's it's going to be appreciated this is stuff that you know for four or five years before hd was kind of mainstream they were building new long-term sets with that in mind hey we need to go out and get the right patina for the fireplace whoosie what's is in the background because if this show doesn't use it some show is going to use this and it needs to look good here it's like the complete opposite they have a wonderful sick bay set which we cannot see because literally the lights are off. It's like some surreal set. It's like uh, the uh, six characters in search of an exit Twilight Zone episode where like you can't see beyond the shadows. Well, what becomes amazing throughout the course of this show's run is how awesome it looks in the later seasons. Um, and here it really doesn't look that good at all. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's a show it's, finding its footing. Yeah, it's it's pretty bad. It's it's the total you know um nexus of the uniforms of the of the lighting of the set of all of that and it 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 just and the performances i think too and the scripts i mean it, it really is everything and and by the you know late middle to end of its run you know even to today it it looks it, it it's not dated itself um terribly i mean you can still tell it's a product of the 1990s don't get me wrong um but it doesn't look anywhere near as dated as this does i would agree and i mean you speak a bit about the evolution of the show i mean can you imagine that uh, i don't the, the title can't isn't in my head at the moment but can you imagine that fantastic two-parter from the from the middle portion of the series where you know picard is captured and tortured if they did that in season one it would be there are no lights. Yeah. Oh, dude. It was you're underlit. See, yeah, boom. It, it it would be you know on top of your your pun there. Um, it would be too rough again tonally to try to get at you know, and and that's where again you know I, I'll I'll correct myself on what I was saying. You know, the idea that the terror that would strike you. Oh my God, we are so far from home. We are never getting home. We're so far from home. We've created the spinoff after the next one. That's how far <laughs> from home we are. Okay. Uh, we, we, we've gone two shows over <laughs> uh, is how far they went. 
not even realizing it, or maybe they did and just said, you know what, that's, that's our show in 1995. Um, but you know, I, I just think that would have been compelling, like trying to come to grips with the reality. You know, we have the naked nows and, and, you know, those kind of stories, you know, the, there's the one, I, I don't remember the name of it off the top of my head. You know, there's, there's an entire subgenre of episodes where Picard and someone else from the ship are coming back from a conference and they return to an enterprise that is, you know, suffered whatnot. You know, there, there's the one where there's, uh, you know, a, a Romulan black hole problem in the midst of a firefight and everybody's oh, yeah. frozen. There's another one. The one I'm referring to explicitly here is where everyone de-evolves. Oh, yeah. You know, directed by Gates McFadden. Yes. Yes. Um, so, you know, I, I think it was too early to go so dark and and definitely too early to go as dark as they went later on, lighting, story, etc. You know, but Matt, let's talk about the Roddenberry effect. Yes, I think it's the Roddenberry effect that makes this episode essential. It's the idea that it's not just that everybody wins by working together, which is the message of the show, you know, we're, we're, we're steeped in that. But then on top of it, we have the quiet, humble traveler who rises above the blustery Kaczynski. You know, it's kind of the Roddenberry idea of, you know, your your skills will really rise above. And that said, you know, the traveler, he doesn't mind letting the other guy take the credit because it's just like he's just trying to explore. And if the other guy wants to, like, get famous, like, that's cool, too. He's exploring. Kaczynski's exploring his own his own life, his own world. So... See, what wound up on the cutting room floor or on the writer's room floor is the entire subplot that this was really about a space visa and the traveler's inability to acquire one, hence his marriage of convenience to Kaczynski. Wow, Pete, a marriage of uh, convenience, huh? Yeah. And, you know, just moving forward, I hate to be rhetorical question guy, but I just got to ask one more. Was this whole sleigh ride, Matt, real, or was this all in their imagination? Wow, that's a good question. Uh, I, I, of course, need to return back to the science where both uh, Jordy and Data do recalculate their position, and, you know, in a real, you know, in, in, in reality. So I would guess reality. I, I like to think that the, I think that the traveler's point about, you know, powered by imagination, which reminds me of that, you know, ride at Epcot. Imagination. imagination. But I don't think that, that makes this voyage a figment. Uh, figment, see, from the ride. Um, I don't think that makes the voyage. I think it's just saying like, hey, we have this untapped potential in our minds to physically explore the world around us. Yeah, I mean, I I can certainly look at it that way. I I think it's it's far too early for the psychological, you know, uh, mind screw of oh man, we just imagined it. We we never moved the whole time, but that they get back to the exact place, I I think makes it a little bit of uh, a stretch. Do they not? Do they not travel through time? Like, no, I don't mean like. Back to the future time travel, like these events did play out over time. They just returned to the space that they left. Is that my correct recollection? Yeah, it it feels like 
uh, I don't know. There's there's a cyclical nature to it that that smacks a little bit of uh, a dream. I think that where you're getting that from is probably centered around the line where it's like, you know, the, the, they repeated a couple times, like, we've never gone past warp 1.5. Yes, yes. I just kind of took that from the point of view of, hey, you have these awesome space rockets of the future that we in 1987 or, ni- or 2013 can hardly can hardly dream of. I think they were saying, hey, you think these space rockets are impressive. How about the potential that you don't know you have? Ding. Yeah. With that, Pete, anything else you want to say about where no one has gone before? No, I think we've covered it all, man. Thank God we've uh, we've gone where no one has gone before, and uh, you know we don't have to go back anytime soon. Indeed, this uh, we almost went and didn't come back because we we had a little technical snafu. Hopefully, we'll have some good outtakes after the uh, after the end of the podcast because uh, we almost we almost went there and didn't come back. Well, well, listen, Kaczynski, uh, you know, with you at the controls, no one would ever be the wiser. Quiet, boy. (laughs) Get away from there, boy. Get away from my manservant. One. Yes, Matt. And we also want to remind all of our Star Trek essential listeners to make their voices heard. Let us know for the second half of our season here, which Star Trek episodes throughout all seven series is 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 uh you want to hear us check out um could be the original the animated uh next gen deep space nine voyager enterprise let us know and we are tabulating the votes absolutely always great to be uh to be hearing from people those those hailing frequencies being open i'm sure that's just a perfectly funny joke pete how can people be in touch with you you can find me on twitter at peter p-i-e uh t-e-r j k-e-t-e-l-a-a-r 7975 followers can't be wrong and while i am personally on twitter's looking back lost you can be in touch with the podcast in a whole variety of ways we are fantastic geek that is fantastic with the p and the h you can find us there on the gmail the dot com the instagram the twitter and facebook.com forward slash fantastic geek with the ph all one word like away well, Pete, we'll be back next week talking some Star Trek Enterprise. And uh, I guess that, that wraps up for this week. So I will say adios and hand it off to you. Make it so. It's been a while since we've had the bubble. What is the bubble? The bu- uh, sorry, the, the, I mean the, the spinny ball thing. The spinny uh, beach ball of yeah. death? That thing sucks. Yeah. Momo. <laughs> Let's have tea because we're French. Now, I thought for certain that was a grandmother. That's the mom. Mimo means mom. Mummy. Okay. Um, at least on translation from, uh, from Wiktionary. As long as it doesn't eat everything. Yeah, it, right. It could easily still be recording right now. Crap and gold right now, man. I know, really. I think it's been recording the entire time and we're good to go. Let me just...
I'll stop yeah, recording for a second and save. Because I want to begin that last thought. This is good outtakes. Maman. Maman. Is my Picard that bad? Yeah, your Picard's pretty good. Thank you, number one. I'd say as a, as a comedic Picard, it's pretty good. Make it so. We will see that history remembers the name Enterprise. It's not like I have a trillion things open either. I don't want to push too many buttons, lest it just be like, oh, I'll just delete everything. Yeah, don't do that. <laughs>